Hi everybody, this is Gatsad. If you'd like to keep all of these conversations freely available to all and not behind the paywall, please consider supporting me. You can do so in one of several ways. You can go to my Patreon account, my Subscribestar account, or my PayPal account. Uh, all of the links uh, to these accounts is on the homepage of my YouTube channel in the right-hand corner on top. Uh, you can click on the link that you prefer and donate accordingly. There's now a fourth way to do so, very seamless way. Below the current clip that you're watching, there is a new icon. It's a heart with a thanks. You click on that and you donate whatever you, you'd like. Uh, if you happen to be listening to this on the audio podcast, you can still find the relevant links uh, and then hopefully you can uh, also support the show. Again, I'm trying to keep these freely available. So if you think that my efforts are uh, worthy of your support, please consider doing so. Thank you so much. And to the, all those who have supported so far, much appreciated. Ciao. Hey, everybody. This is uh, Gat Saad. Uh, about a couple of weeks ago, I had taped a HBO documentary titled Crime of the Century, dealing with the opioid crisis. And one of the... Uh, persons who was uh, featured prominently in that uh, clip is my guest today. Uh, and so I thought I had to have him on and he kindly agreed to be on. Patrick, how are you doing? Very well. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be with you. So let me, for, the, for those of you who don't know who Patrick is, because I've only given you his first name, let me be more formal. So Patrick Raiden Keefe is a staff writer at The New Yorker and the author most recently of the New York Times bestseller, Say Nothing, A True Story of Murder and Memory in Northern Ireland, which received the National Book Critics Circle Award for Nonfiction, was selected as one of the 10 best books of 2019 by The New York Times Book Review, The Washington Post, and so on, and was named as one of the 10 best nonfiction books of the decade. Wow. By Entertainment Weekly, his previous books are The Snakehead and Chatter, he was his work has been recognized with the Guggenheim Fellowship, the National Magazine Award for Feature Writing, and the Orwell Prize for Political Writing. He is also the creator and host of the eight-part podcast Wind of Change, and I think you're also a staff. Oh, I think I mentioned it, staff writer at New Yorker. Let me show them your book, which you so kindly sent me. And you know, Patrick, there, I'm very much of an aesthetic person, and there is a tactile feel to this, and in aesthetics, isn't that, that cool? It, it's unbelievable. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I don't like to read ebooks as much as feeling this. And your book certainly meets that. Please go out and get it. So I thought we'd start with the following. First, hit us with a quick synopsis of the book so that people know what we're talking about. Uh, the book, again, is titled, let me give you the full title, Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty. Take it away. Give us your synopsis, sir. So the book is about three generations of this one family, the Sacklers, who are based primarily in the U.S., in the northeastern U.S., around New York and Connecticut, but also there's a branch in London. And the Sacklers, until fairly recently, were known uh, mainly for being a, a very prominent philanthropic dynasty, for giving away hundreds of millions of dollars to art museums and universities and to medical research facilities all around the world. And it was really only in recent years that people began to ask uh, some hard questions about what the source of a lot of this wealth was. They're one of the wealthiest families in the world. And it turns out that a lot of that money came from the marketing and sale of OxyContin, a powerful opioid painkiller that helped spark the opioid crisis, uh, this public health emergency that has unfolded out over the last 25 years 
and killed about half a million people in the United States. Um, and so the, the book is uh, not just looking at the opioid crisis, it's actually looking at three generations of this family really starting in the early 20th century uh, in Brooklyn, New York, and the role that this family played in medical marketing and medical advertising and the, the full legacy of the family over the course of about a century. You know, it, uh, thank you for that. that was a great synopsis. Uh, one of the things that interests me about this story, I mean, other than of the obvious that it's uh, it's, a, it's an incredible tale, is that it is at the intersection of medicine and business. And I'm someone who is housed in the in the business school, and I apply evolutionary psychology and evolutionary biology to study consumer behavior. So I, I straddle the natural sciences versus social sciences line. And of, and by the way, in, in business schools, some business schools, including the one I'm housed at, they have dedicated courses in the MBA program to pharmaceutical marketing. So mm -hmm. so if you want, I mean, we could start with that angle or we could talk about, you know, what is it that they did that was, uh, some would argue, if not everybody, that was criminal. Uh, take it in any way you want to go. I mean, do you want to talk first about, you know, what are, what are, here are the five things that they did that should be getting them into trouble. And by the way, you are a lawyer, so you can speak definitively on the matter. Maybe, maybe start oh, with that. Well, yeah, not, not a lawyer who's never practiced. I'll put it that way. Okay, fair enough. Um, but the, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, to, to me, that in, in a way, those two subjects are linked because part of what was so intriguing to me about this family is that they had a genius going back decades before the introduction of OxyContin, which was, which was introduced in 1996. There was a genius in this family for how you market pharmaceutical products and, and market them not just to consumers, but to physicians. So right. Arthur Sackler, who... Um, is the, the figure who really dominates the first third of the book, even though he died in 1987, he died before OxyContin was ever introduced. He was this fascinating, charismatic figure who in the 1940s and 50s um, kind of looked around and saw a period of real ferment in the, the, the world of, you know, what we today would call big pharma. But basically in the, in the aftermath of the Second World War, you get all these companies starting to really innovate um, with antibiotics and, and various other drugs and rolling out new drugs practically every week. And they were looking for product differentiation. They were looking for, you know, how do you inform consumers about these, these, these new products that are coming online? How do you inform doctors who would need to prescribe them? And Arthur Sackler was very, very creative and very aggressive about courting doctors, court because they have the prescription pad, and that is this incredibly powerful uh, economic lever. And so he made his first great fortune actually marketing Librium and Valium, uh, these big tranquilizers, which were at the time the most successful drugs in the history of the pharmaceutical industry back in the 1960s. And so what was fascinating to me about this family is that there's this history dating that far back. Um, that then uh, kind of comes to the fore in the 1990s when the family sets out through their company, Purdue Pharma, to launch this very powerful opioid painkiller and to try and reach a market that was bigger than there ever had been for that type of drug in the past. So the company actually had a, a prior drug, MS Contin, which was a cancer drug. It was a, a morphine drug chiefly used for, for very extreme cancer pain. And physicians in the U.S. and in Canada would have been 
reluctant to prescribe that kind of drug too widely outside of quite severe uh, cases of pain. So the cancer pain context, end of life type situations, um, acute, acute pain situations where you would do it in a short term way. But what they wouldn't do, for instance, is prescribe that type of drug for chronic non-malignant pain. And like so, what, a knee, a knee injury and I'm, it's post-surgery and I'm feeling some pain, I need to get over the hump, I've got back pain, uh, one of my discs slips, that kind of thing, we wouldn't be prescribing it for that kind of stuff. Exactly. Okay. And that was the, the big pivot that the company made, was they said, we want to position this new drug, OxyContin, uh, not just for cancer pain, we want to, we want to reach the non-malignant chronic pain market, which they estimated could be as many as 40 or 50 million people in the United States. So the hurdle that they had from a marketing point of view is that doctors were kind of suspicious of these drugs. There was a, there was a fear um, about the dangers of addiction and abuse. And that meant that doctors were disinclined to prescribe these in the in the promiscuous manner that the company would have liked to see. And so they, they, they launched this big push essentially to change the mind of the medical establishment, to destigmatize strong opioids and really push to have them prescribed much, much more widely. And that turned out to be a tremendously successful push. It was a real game changer. So OxyContin was by no means the only opioid painkiller that fed into the opioid crisis, but it was in the words of one of the company employees who I interviewed who worked on the drug, it was the tip of the spear. And it really did change the behavior uh, of the medical establishment. But, but that push was also premised on something that turns out to have been a lie, which is that the drug wasn't addictive. Exactly. That if it was prescribed by a doctor, it wasn't addictive. Or it was addi what they said again and again was it was addictive less than 1% of the time. So you know, the, the opioid crisis is obviously very, very complicated. There are many, many factors, and we can we can certainly talk about them. But the the original sin, in my mind, was this marketing push in the 1990s for OxyContin. And so is it a two-step process, just to kind of summarize what you said? Number one, I need to, I'm speaking now as a Sackler family, I need to, uh, you know, grow the, the market, you know, the likely prospective, uh, you know, consumers of this product. So first, I need to take it from, you know, end of life issues to sort of uh, make it normalize it to other contexts. Now that itself would be an unethical uh, position to take because you're you're not supposed to officially be using those for back pain, correct? Well, it depends. I mean, I think that there was a this this is something that that physicians argued about back in the 1990s and that they argue about today. I think there are um, you know, there are different schools of thought when it comes to what the what the long term therapeutic efficacy of these types of drugs, you know, like beyond three months. Can you be Purdue had a they had a marketing catchphrase. They said OxyContin is the one to start with and the one to stay with. And there's there's two parts of that. Right. So the first part is this isn't some nuclear solution that you graduate to when other remedies have failed. This should be the first course of action. For a physician is to just write a script for this drug but then the second part is you can just keep taking it forever and with opioids the body uh, uh, develops tolerance habituates yeah yeah so you need to end up kind of titrating up the dose but they had many many different doses and part of the innovation of oxycontin was that you could have a I mean for a time they had a 160 milligram pill 
um, which they ended up taking off the market, but that you could graduate from 20 to 40 to 80. Um, and so, and so tightered in that manner. Okay, so then if, if, if that part still involves debates between the experts, we can be charitable and grant them, grant them the plausible deniability right, right. angle. But then to argue that, oh no, don't you worry, it is absolutely not addictive, and at best it's addictive in 1%, that we can absolutely not grant them that charitable, plausible deniability. That is an outright lie. It's fabricated. That therein, that's where the crux of the criminal angle comes from, right? That particular selling point. I, so it's interesting. I mean, yes and no. I, to me, that um, it was a conjecture. It was at best a conjecture that they dressed up as scientific fact. And so, you know, there was a there was a, a brief letter to the New England Journal of Medicine that was not a peer reviewed study. It was not a, uh, you know, a serious, comprehensive study um, that the sales reps would trot out. And you have to remember the reps, they're visiting busy physicians. The physicians have a lot going on. And they're coming to you and saying, listen, we have a solution. You have patients in pain and we have a solution that has no side effects, really. Nothing for you to worry about. You can just write the prescription. And so I think that was actually a welcome, uh, you know, it, it was a, it was welcome news to a lot of doctors who weren't necessarily crooks, but they, they, they wanted to believe they wanted to buy what the company was selling the, for, to me. Um, the where it starts to get criminal and i should say i mean not necessarily in the sense that the that you could prosecute the family i think those would be tough cases to make but but where it gets really grossly unethical is actually after they launch the drug so all the stuff we talked about they, they put it out there in the market they've got this kind of wishful thinking idea that it won't be addictive there won't be any problems they target this much much broader segment of the market and then almost immediately word starts coming back from those same sales reps, because those sales reps are like the eyes and ears, they're all across the country, word starts coming back that actually people are abusing the drug, they're getting addicted to it, they're overdosing, they're dying. And to me, that's the real hinge point morally, and it should be legally, where they're they're confronted with evidence that their hubristic experiments has gone sideways. Well, it's for, forgive me for interrupting you. I mean, it's already difficult to get someone to change their positions when they're anchored in a position. Now, when that position also gets you billions of dollars, then I'm really not going to change my position. Absolutely. And to me, that that's the one of the psychologically. That's one of the most interesting aspects of this story is that it's. I, I think there's a tendency when people talk about these types of stories to think of them as purely about greed. And greed is definitely a factor, but to me, it's much more, it's what you're getting at. It's this strange cocktail of, of, of greed and denial, yeah, right? Yeah. So, I mean, they argued from what I understood, uh, I, I haven't yet, I want to read every single word of your book, but I sort of perused it just in preparation for our meeting. Uh, they argued that, hey, you know, we're, I mean, yes, officially, I mean, we're running the company, but we don't know sort of the day-to-day -day details. So again, kind of trying to trigger the pl plausible deniability. Can one in any way postulate that that could be true or there is absolutely no way that all of that evidence that was coming in, as you said, from the people in the trenches, the sales force, could somehow not have found its way to the eyes and ears of the Sackler family? Yeah, I mean, this is one of these funny things where they have, um, 
there's a bit of a shell game that the family has always played in terms of the family and the company. And so you have this sort of strange paradox where they put their name up on buildings on, you know, on museums with a sort of mania, but then have always um, tried to, to keep the family company at arm's length, at least cosmetically. So certainly when I started researching the family in 2017, I went to the website of Purdue Pharma and I couldn't find a reference to the family anywhere on the website of the company. This is the family that owns the company, dominates the board, always has. And so their claim now is that they were um, not very engaged in any meaningful way. Uh, there's a little bit of, of kind of, you know, I'm shocked, shocked to learn there's gambling at this casino, right? They're sort of, they're, they're very disappointed to learn that, um, that this company that they own and have directed for years uh, has pled guilty not once but, but twice to federal criminal charges. The, the amazing experience that I had when I was doing my research was getting access to tens of thousands of pages of court documents, including huge amounts of internal company communications. And what you see there is this is a family that was uh, maniacally micromanaging the business. So the exact opposite of what they said. Absolutely. Okay. I mean, to, to, to a kind of, to a, a, you're, at a, you're at a business school, right? So, so um, you would, you know, you would appreciate the, the dynamics here, but the, th there are multiple different company CEOs who end up writing these plaintiff emails in which they say, you know, please just let me be the CEO. I'm trying to run the company and the family, the board keeps intervening and doing my job for me. You're making it impossible for me. So it is one of these things where even in a kind of stand, when you think about the kind of standard corporate structures, the personality of this family imposed itself um, and kind of had its way with the company, even when there was a, somebody else who was the titular CEO. Now, how did you, I mean, I, I saw, I, I actually listened to another podcast of yours where you sort of briefly, you know, spoke about this, but I'd like to dig deeper as someone who also is in the business of, of writing as an author. How, how do you decide, you know, how, how did this topic come to you? I mean, what, what, what was the spark? What was the genesis? And before you answer, let me sort of kind of give a background. Uh, you know, several of my books, were in the area of evolutionary psychology because that's my scientific work. So, so it doesn't take much for me to explain why I would have studied those things in, in different ways. When it came to my latest book, uh, you know, The Parasitic Mind, where I'm talking about how bad ideas spread in society, but how they all originally germinate their spawn in the university setting. Well, that's not difficult for, for me to explain because I've lived in academia my entire life. Now, in your case, you know, you weren't a pharma guy. You weren't. So how do you get hooked on this and then write, you know, a four or five hundred page book on the topic? Yeah, I mean, you know, my I'm a I'm a magazine writer. And so there is a kind of um, there's an element of dilettantism and in, baked into what I do. Um, it's it's uh, it, quite by design. I, I move from topic to topic and, and kind of chase what's interesting to me. In this case, um, I did have a bit of expertise in the world of drugs, but not legal drugs. I had written quite a bit uh, for The New Yorker and for The New York Times Magazine about the world of illicit drugs and the, the business models of Mexican drug cartels. And so I spent a huge amount of time looking at um, the illicit drug industry and interviewing 
people who've worked for the cartels and people who studied the cartels and, uh, you know, federal agents who spent their careers kind of trying to go after these, uh, these organizations. And I was interested in them as, as transnational commodities enterprises, you know, not just as criminal rackets, but, um, as you know, the Sinaloa drug cartel is, is a big business. And so there was a piece that I did that I sort of jokingly, described it as like a Harvard Business School case study of a Mexican drug syndicate. Um, and one of the things I noticed was that they they put a lot of thought into, you know, which product lines do they introduce, what do they push, when, how do they get into a market. And what brought me to this subject was, was noticing that after 2010, the Sinaloa cartel and other drug cartels in Mexico suddenly started exporting a lot more heroin, Mexican heroin into the U S than they had been in the past. And that seemed like a riddle until I figured out that the answer was the opioid crisis, that there was this huge market in the U S that had had this on ramp to opioids in the form of prescription drugs and had eventually graduated to heroin, which is a, you know, it's a chemical cousin of Oxycontin. It's not that different. Um, and so I sort of came in through the back door, if you like, and I mean, what was interesting to me was, was, um, the connection between the world of the Mexican drug cartel, which I think we, we have a certain iconography in our minds. We think of the war on drugs. We think of, uh, you know, street corner drug dealers getting busted for selling fairly small amounts of drugs. And at least in the U S you know, getting these massive prison sentences. Um, and I also think there's something quite particular to the U.S. where we tend to think of these things. It's always about a foreign invasion. You know, there's this notion of kind of drugs being this thing that comes from the outside and it happens to us. Right. We, we are very reluctant to look at the demand side and tend to prefer to focus on the supply side. So to me, it was just very, very intriguing to learn that there was, that the, the part of the way you got this huge market um, was through the illicit pharmaceutical industry and that this one family that had a kind of blue chip reputation had benefited to such a tremendous extent and that none of this seemed to have caught up with them. Um, so that was the way in for me. And how, so in the case of the drug cartels, one can, I mean, I don't know what you specifically wrote that it can potentially trigger their ire or not, but assuming that it could, would that have been a concern? I better be careful. There might be death threats from hit squads of cartel. And then to, 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 to then go on with the case of the Sacklers, they may not put hitmen on you, but they may put legal hitmen on you. Uh, we're going to sue you. You better shut your mouth. So have you had to deal with either of those two threats, whether it be literally the assassin or the legal assassin in, in dealing with these types of topics? So the, in the Mexican context, I mean, the, the first important thing to say is that the, um, and that this has happened for me in other fraught environments that I've reported as well. Um, I, I tend to be fairly careful about the risks and I'm always very mindful of the fact that the risks are so much greater for people who are on the ground. So Mexico is an incredibly dangerous country in which to be a journalist, particularly a journalist writing about the cartels. But, but that tends not to include Americans who have a U.S. passport and can leave anytime. And so I had that luxury. Um, and I didn't, you know, there was one, this is kind of a funny story. There was, I did worry a little bit after the second big piece I wrote about Chapo Guzman, um, about his capture. This is when he was in prison before he escaped. Um, I was contacted by a lawyer for Chapo Guzman 
for Yikes. that family. And I, I did, yeah, I was quite scared. And um, but the, the the crazy punchline is that when I got on the phone with the guy, he he had a proposal for me, which is that he said that Chapa Guzman wanted to write his memoirs, and would I be interested in ah. ghostwrite them? And so I, it was one of these bizarre things where I had thought that they'd be very angry about the piece, but apparently they um, they you know it was, it was quite the opposite. But the um, but no, I mean the Sacklers, it was more uh, they they were much more aggressive, honestly, than um, than the Sinaloa cartel. Uh, in terms of um, trying to just stop me in my tracks. And so they started, there was an announcement after I decided to do the book, there was an announcement in the trades saying that I was going to do the book. And shortly thereafter, we got the first of about two dozen very aggressive legal letters. What, what is, I mean, what's the content? You better not say something that defames us. What's the legal framework by which we're threatening you? How does that work? So it was fascinating. So what happened was I had published this originally. I published a long article in the New Yorker in 2017 on about, them about the sacrifice. Okay. Yes. And, and that piece uh, got a lot of attention and um, I, I think somewhat changed the conversation It put some real scrutiny on the family and they didn't respond to it at the time. The family did not respond to it. But after it was announced I was doing a book, the first, the opening salvo from them was this 17-page single-spaced letter demanding a series of corrections to the article from, you know, a year Several years ago. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And The New Yorker, they're very diligent about this stuff. This is what I love about the magazine. They got a fact-checker to re-fact-check the whole article using that letter as a roadmap. And they went through each of the assertions that the Sacklers made, you know, claiming that I'd gotten things wrong. And the fact checker said, no, everything checks out. We're not. Gonna wow. So real journalists world. still exist in the world. They, they do. It's <laughs> a, uh, yeah, they, they're, they're a few, uh, there are a few left. And, um, but I, so I was, you know, obviously it was, it was a nervous time for me to have them, um, re fact checking my piece because I hoped that I'd gotten everything right. But of course, if I'd gotten anything wrong, I would have said, of course, we should make, we should make changes. But they, independently said, no, we're not, you know, th this all checks out. We're not going to change anything. And at that point, the soccer sent me a letter saying, um, you know, we think we will probably sue w with this book. And so there was a, what they call a litigation hold where they said, you have to, you know, not destroy any of the evidence. Um, that is your notes, your documents, all that stuff. Don't, don't go destroying evidence in the event that we eventually sue you over this stuff. Which you have to imagine. I mean, I hadn't started writing yet. <laughs> wow, it felt a little premature. Um, the, but it, did that, you, I, that was not the last letter. But did you at any point feel sufficiently intimidated? I mean, sure, you could pause and think about it. But that you said, you know, maybe I won't write this, or or to use a a imagery that I often refer to. So in, in the last chapter of uh, my latest book, I talk about activating your inner honey badger. Of course, honey badger being a fierce and ferocious animal that is much f more fierce than its size. Uh, did you turn into a honey badger as a result of the 12 letters or however, or did you ever uh, sort of retreat into a fetal position, sucking your thumb in fear? I didn't, you know, I um, yeah, probably more honey badger. I mean, I okay. think the, um, the, uh, so a couple of things. I mean, I've, I've written very, I've written tough pieces about billionaires before, and on some level, this is I think just this is part of what happens. It's part of the game as they they sick their lawyers at you. Um, I think a lot of the time these are people who are told they're not used to getting told no, and I think it's really frustrating for them when they when they realize that there's something out there that they can't just stop 
with a yeah. with a snap of their fingers. Also known um, as the Harvey Weinstein effect. Absolutely, but but actually, I'm glad you mentioned that because the other thing that they did was there was a private investigator who came and staked out my house, just out you know over my shoulder back here. Conspicuously, he, they want you to see that he's there. Well, I, it's interesting. I wondered about this, and I, I interviewed another private investigator subsequently and asked, and and he said, yeah. I mean, I live on on a street where it would be hard to hide, yeah. but the. Um, but what struck me about that, as with the Harvey Weinstein case, was I just thought, what a, what a strange move, because it, it was a pandemic. I'm a writer. I hardly leave the house. There's <laughs> nothing you could learn by watching my house. So then the only point would be to intimidate me. And there, I'm, you know, I'm not going to be intimidated. And in fact, I'll write about it in the book, which I did. Good for but, you. But, but to me, part of, the, part of what's significant from a broader, kind of more systemic point of view is you ask how a family or a business can get away with it this long, how these things happen. And the answer is these types of tactics often work. And so I tell, there's a kind of prehistory to this. I tell the story in the book about how when the New York Times was originally reporting on Purdue Pharma 20 years ago, a reporter named Barry Meyer, they did the same techniques and they you know, kind of got their lawyers to go after him and actually went over his head to the brass at the New York Times, and they ended up taking him off the story. So I think that the kind of attack the messenger approach is often very effective for these people. I was determined that it would not be effective in this well, case. Well, the Scientology folks do the same thing, right? When someone exactly. wants to sort of, I don't know what the term would be, decommissioned or or leave or uh, you know become an apostate, uh, yeah. they do the same thing, yeah. So yeah, and I've, and I've seen, I mean, this is one of the nice things about, you know, I've been writing for The New Yorker for 15 years now, and and, and um, it, it, one of the great privileges of the job is I'm, my heroes are my colleagues, right? So so Lawrence Wright, my colleague and friend at The New Yorker, you know, wrote the book on Scientology, literally, and, and, um, uh, and he, you know, I know that he had to deal with these similar types of tactics from Scientology's lawyers. Ronan Farrow, my colleague, yeah. wrote about Harvey Weinstein and no was kidding. followed by a private investigator and dealt with the same things. So um, it's it's useful that I have in my in my uh, in my Rolodex people I can call on for advice. Well, but I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned each of those cases because it speaks in a sense. It's a nice segue to my next question, because each of those cases, there is a similar tactic that is used in completely different contexts. In one case don't leave Scientology, don't say bad things. In another case, it's the Sacklers. In another case, it's a sexual predator and so on. But, but they're all using the same intimidation tactics. So now let's take that concept of, you know, the same tactics are used across settings. And so if we look at company malfeasance, and so here, because you mentioned Harvard Business School case, and so that's what you would do in a, if you're creating a business uh, school case because you want to see if there are some greater lessons to take beyond the specific instantiation of that case, right? So if we talk about company malfeasance, we have you know the uh, British Petroleum oil spill, the Bhopal incident in the 80s, uh, you know, all, Bernie Madoff, which is perhaps a completely different case in that he, you know, he truly is just a crook, crook from day one. Are there, oh, sorry, uh, the tobacco industry, mm -hmm. there, there, there is no proof that uh, smoking and lung cancer are linked. The sugar uh, lobby, right? Eat as much sugar as you want. That's fantastic for you. Uh, so 
is are there some blueprints of deniability of scamming of rejecting science is is there kind of a playbook we can go to here are the seven steps by which companies who are engaging in nefarious you know behaviors follow and then the the sacklers exactly adhere to those that recipe it's a fascinating question and i don't know that i've systematized it uh to a degree um that would be entirely responsive but i think broadly speaking yeah i you know i i think that there's a lot going on it, it was a privately held company so that's one thing and it was a family business and it had grown up over the decades and there was a sense um you know, I, I interviewed I interviewed 200 people for this book and, and people who'd worked in the company in every decade. But nobody from to, the Sackler family? No, they wouldn't talk. None of them would talk. Not one. Not okay, one. Wow. Um, and, but I interviewed all these people who'd worked with them and for them. And there were a lot of people who adored the Sacklers and still do. And there was a great deal of loyalty within the company, a sense particularly with the older generation that you had these these – two of the three brothers who ran the company um, and that they took care of people. They demanded loyalty, but they repaid loyalty. And um, you end up, I think, with uh, a series of attributes that we might associate with a, with a small family-run business and we might think of as good attributes that end up curdling. So that notion of loyalty, you show us loyalty, we'll reward loyalty. Um, you can tip into a kind of mob-like ethos pretty quickly. And so, you know, that ends up getting uh, exemplified in 2007 when federal prosecutors in Virginia were had, had spent five years building a criminal case against Purdue. There were three senior executives who they wanted to charge with felonies, with jail time. And their idea, and I know this having interviewed some of these prosecutors, was that if they could get these three guys uh, charged with felonies, these were soft, what they call soft targets, right? These guys did not want to spend a night in jail. They would flip. And they would flip on the Sacklers. Right. So then the investigation could shift to the Sacklers. But what ended up happening is that there was a, you know, the Sacklers had these high-powered lawyers. They had people like Rudy Giuliani and Mary Jo White, who went and intervened with the political leadership in the Justice Department of George W. Bush. So went over the heads of the prosecutors and got those felonies taken off the table. So now it's just misdemeanors that the guys will will plead to. So these three executives pled to misdemeanors, which meant no jail time. And they were paid millions of dollars by the family for doing this. There was a company lawyer who said they had to take the fall for the family. That's what they did. We had to protect the family at all costs. And um, the guys end up leaving the company, but one of them, who was the lawyer, uh, his portrait ends up in the law library, and they rename the law library after this guy. And so I interviewed all these people who worked at Purdue and said, it was this weird thing, because we knew there was this guilty plea by the company in 2007, and afterwards the official story was, oh, we've changed, it was a few bad apples, you know, we've cleaned up our act. But then you walk into the law library at the company on the eighth floor and it's named after <laughs> one of the bad apples yeah. and there's a portrait of him and they kind of venerate this guy. And so and there was this sense, I think, and I, you know, I've interviewed people much more recently who worked at the company who said everybody would look back at those guys. They were loyal to the family. They took the fall for the family and they were paid millions of dollars 
and taken care of. And that was the sense, was that you take care of the family, the family takes care of you. I think that, you know, in terms of a recipe for corporate malfeasance, it would be hard to come up with a, yeah. a sort of a riper example than that. Do you think, so continuing with sort of the business school uh, theme, so when, when the Bernie Madoff, uh, you know, fiasco happened, as often happens with in education, well, in anything, fads start. And so in the business school, you had to incorporate, you know, ethics in every single course, right? Because, because somehow, and frankly, and I actually wrote an article in my uh, Psychology Today column where I argued that while it's, it's wonderful to discuss ethics in, in, in any possible context, the idea that by teaching ethics in a business school, this is going to stop people in the future from engaging in unethical practices because, you know, they took uh, business ethics or 101 with uh, Gatsad uh, is simply a erroneous understanding of human nature, right? And so do you think that whether it be the Sackler case or the Madoff case or any other instantiation or manifestation of poor behavior by business people, do you think, I mean, in a sense, I'm, I'm leading the question because I told you what I thought. Do you think that you can actually preclude that, stop that, temper that, modulate that by having people be exposed to good business practices or people are going to do what they do no matter what? I think, well, I, I mean, I, I do think that people are rational. Um, and so, you know, the idea that I I I would tend to agree with you that a, you know, a little seminar on business ethics or some kind of compulsory, um, two credit uh, module. Yeah. Career education or two credit module. I don't think it's going to change the way anybody behaves. Um, to me, I look at this story and it is a story about how crime pays. Yeah. And I think that people are are smart. And, and you know, there are a, an awful lot of smart business people who think about risk for a living and in their in their decisions personally in their own lives, but then also in the decisions they make on behalf of of a of an organization. They're they're weighing different things. So in the case of, of Purdue Pharma, it's, it's a very good example. 2007, the company pleads guilty to federal criminal charges of misbranding OxyContin. And there's a $600 million fine. And at the time, there's this amazing moment where there was a hearing in the Senate to discuss this settlement. And Arlen Specter was a Republican uh, senator, he's not dead, uh, from Pennsylvania, who was on the Judiciary Committee. He kind of had this he sort of mused aloud and he said, you know, it's a little strange for me when you see situations like this, because here's a company that's committed these crimes. Uh, but the three executives just got misdemeanors. They're not going to jail. And $600 million, on the one hand, a lot of money. On the other hand, the company's making billions of dollars, you know, behaving in this risky way. And his quote that has always stuck with me is he said, I sometimes wonder if fines, even big ones, are not just expensive licenses for criminal misconduct. <laughs> so he says that in 2007. Uh, Ten years later, I come along to write my article for The New Yorker, and everybody at Purdue Pharma tells me, we've totally cleaned up our act. After 2007, we never did anything wrong. You know, we've got a compliance program, and we've hired all these people, and we do, you know, it's all the stuff you're talking about, all the kind of fig leaf, exactly. um, you know, little, little, uh, institutions to kind of, in a way to sort of virtue signal, to sort of, 
to tell the world, look, we're, you know, we behave now. Um, and I had, I had a feeling that this, you know, this, this maybe wasn't true. And they were very indignant with me. And they said, oh, no, you know, this story, the story you're talking about, it ends in 2007. And after that, we think it. So fast forward to just a few months ago to late 2020. They pled guilty. The company pled guilty to new federal criminal charges. And the conduct that they pled guilty to covered a decade. So it goes back to 2010. So to me, what this says is uh, – I think there were rational calculations by people. They said, if we can get away with it, we're going to get away with it. The, you know, OxyContin has generated $35 billion in revenue, right? If you, want to, if you want to slow that train down, you need more than an ethics seminar. And I think, I think what would have been really helpful would be if those three guys had gone to jail yeah. in 2007. Uh, and I've talked to the prosecutors who brought, you know, wanted to bring that case, and they felt the same way, is that if... if People in the company knew that there were three senior most executives from the company who were now in prison. It would potentially change their behavior in a way that a six hundred million dollar fine and a, you know a robust compliance department would right. not. So where 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 are we now in terms of the the legal stuff? Who's is anybody going to jail? What's the final? Is, is it? I think it was twelve billion dollars. What was the settlement? How much was it for? Well, it's, it's, so it's complicated. The, um, on the, is anybody going to jail question? No, nobody's going to jail. And nobody um, will, you think? Or it's, no, it's, I don't think anybody will. No. So, so there, was a, it, there was this second uh, federal guilty plea by the company. This one was really fascinating. So this time around, there weren't any executives charged with anything, even misdemeanors, or even named. So there's, I mean, I have a, a line in my book where I talk about how this conception it seems so strange to me. It's, it's a conception of a company as like a like a driverless car. It's, it's like you an know, amorphous the, being. Yeah, it just it autonomously commits crimes, right. but you know, without any actual human beings even named as having any agency. Um, and there were these headlines after that guilty plea where the federal government said, "Oh, Purdue agrees to fines of eight billion dollars." But this was another example of the brilliant kind of spin and marketing in play. Purdue didn't have $8 billion. Anybody who was watching this case closely knew that Purdue actually was in bankruptcy at this point with you know, maybe a billion dollars in cash and assets. And, um, and, and most of that money was going to end up going to lawyers who were working on the bankruptcy. So this is where we end up today is you have this kind of crazy situation where between those two guilty pleas in 2007 and 2020, the family starts quietly pulling money out of the company. And I think a lot of people think they did this because they knew that a day of reckoning was coming. They knew it was going to catch up with the company. So they're, they're taking all this money out of the company. We, it's, been, it's been kind of documented. I mean, it could have been more, but, but what we know about is that they took 10 plus billion dollars out of the company over about a decade. And so once you take it out, that means it's kind of outside the reach of the law because it is no longer somehow linked to the apparatus of the company. What, what, what protects you from going after wherever they take the money? Well, so it, in theory, it's not outside the reach of the law, except that a lot of this money ends up offshore okay. uh, in, you know, in various uh, kind of bank secrecy havens. So it's all tied up in Jersey Trust. Art dealings. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So very, I mean, so it would be hard for the government to go after the money. But you, so you end up in this crazy situation though, right? Where the only reason the company declares bankruptcy is because 
it, it has lost $10 billion to the family that owns it. The company declares bankruptcy. The family's on the sidelines with that fortune intact. And bankruptcy turns out to be, a, a, for them, a really wonderful way to resolve this whole thing because there's almost 3,000 lawsuits against the company and the family. The, you know, every state is suing the company, every state in the U.S. Half the states are suing individual members of the family. And all that gets put on hold. And it sounds like the judge in the bankruptcy case is going to end up, you know, not just kind of wrapping up the bankruptcy of Purdue Pharma, but issuing a release from any future litigation to members of the family. Wow. Um, so they will, you know, I think in order to, to obtain that, they will give up a lot of money. They're, they're proposing four and a quarter billion dollars. Um, but even that, to be honest with you, I mean, that's a, it all depends on which end of the telescope you're looking to. Yeah. That looks like a lot of money. I mean, four, four and a quarter billion dollars, unquestionably, a great deal of money. But, um, but if you're looking at the money they took out of the company during the years it was committing those federal crimes, it's 40 cents on the dollar. So, I mean, you could really view it as part of the cost of doing business, right? So, for example, shoplifting is just something that I incorporate in my profit and loss statement. I mean, X percent. Absolutely. So that's what it is. Absolutely. And this and to me, this is what is so galling about this whole story, yeah. right, is that, is that if if you could say if you could go back to 2007, eight, nine uh, and say to the Sacklers, all right, so look, here's the situation. Um, things could get, you know, there's a huge amount of money left to be made here if you continue with these tactics uh, and don't slow the train down. Um, and eventually, you know, there's going to be a price to pay. The bad news is the price will be four and a quarter billion dollars, but you won't have to, you know, nobody will go to jail. You won't, you won't have to even admit any wrongdoing. And then eventually you'll be released from any liability. You'll be kind of free to waltz off in the sunset and you can keep six billion. Is it worth it to you? You're going to make $10 billion over the next decade. Eventually you're going to get a slap on the wrist. You have to give up four, but you can keep six. Well, again, you, you use the word rational. So from a utility maximization perspective, it's not difficult to predict what most people would do, right? Exactly. Yeah. So uh, earlier, I, well, I mentioned uh, uh, art, uh, the, the art angle. And so I thought that would be a good segue. So I, I know that, as you mentioned at the start of our chat, that they were quite philanthropic, uh, you know, the, the Sackler Museum, this and the, this and that. So there are different ways that we can look at why they did that. And here I'm asking you either to speculate or maybe you actually know firsthand. So one possibility is, Look, one of the ways that I wish to uh, uh, assuage my guilt over all of the horrible things that I know that I'm doing in business, certainly in the opioid case, is to be philanthropic in, in, the, in the grand calculus and the forensic accounting of you know some higher power although I'm not much of a believer, uh, it would be great if I give this to the cancer ward and this to the museum. And so this is a way for me to, to tie all this together. Another way to look at it, now we're going to come from an evolutionary perspective at this. So in one of my chat, in one of my book, my first book in the Evolutionary Basis of Consumption, I talk about philanthropy as a costly signal. And let me explain what I mean by that because costly has a very specific term in, in a biological sense. So when we, when I am the upper uppers, I'm the Rockefellers, I'm the families from the first Gilded Age or the second Gilded Age or, or you know, so on, I actually don't have to drive uh, fancy cars. As a matter of fact, the upper uppers don't drive fancy cars because 
everyone else in my circle are billionaires so they could easily imitate that signal. It doesn't discriminate between all of us. But if I could throw away $150 million on a painting that a monkey could have done, if he were on opioids, then that demonstrates that I'm truly big dog because through the wasteful consumption, it is a costly signal. It is an honest signal. So the peacock's tail, because it is so burdensome, because it reduces the survivability, it's survivability. It makes it more conspicuous to predators. It makes it more difficult to avoid pred- evade predators. Therefore, for it to evolve, it must be sending a signal to the peahens, the females, I'm still here, choose me. So could all of, so in this long-winded way, do you think that the Sacklers or others upper uppers are engaging in all of this philanthropy because seldom do people become super wealthy without being immoral crooks and therefore that's a way to assuage my guilt or am I doing it for what I just said, which is it's a form of orgiastic peacocking? Yeah, I, I think I think uh, I'm gonna go with the uh, Orgiastic Peacock. I mean, um, <laughs> and that's why I'm Doctor Gatsad. <laughs> exactly. The I think you're. Yeah, I mean, I, I, with with one little caveat. So the, the first thing I would say is I don't. The idea of philanthropy as expiation, yeah. as a, as a way to assuage guilt, as is. Um, it's kind of an appealing idea, but in a strange way, I think it gives the Sacklers too much credit, the Sacklers <laughs> and people like them, because I, what I found, particularly when I got access to, and I should say, you know, the family didn't talk to me, but I ended up getting a huge volume of internal email. I have private emails from the family members, you know, a private WhatsApp log um, that the family maintained. And so it's really revealing to see the way they talk amongst themselves in private. Wow. And what I discovered is that there's not a lot of guilt there. <laughs> there's not a lot of guilt to expiate. So you know, they don't... you've got the empirical data that rules out explanation one, basically. Yes. Right. Yes. With, with this one caveat, long before the opioid crisis, even in the life of Arthur Sackler, Arthur Sackler, um, was a peacock of the first order and exactly the way you describe. And he had a sense of, um, you know, he grew up during the Great Depression. He grew up with a father who lost everything during the Depression, um, but who had this kind of fierce pride. There's this moment I describe in the book which really unlocked a lot of my understanding of this family where the father loses everything in the Depression and he, he gathers his three sons to him. And he says, um, you know, I want you all to become doctors. That's my fondest hope for you. But you're going to have to pay for your educations yourselves. I have no money to give you. The only thing that I can give you, the only thing I have left, just happens to be the most important thing that a parent can give a child, which is a good name. I'm giving you a good name. And the father says, uh, he says, you know, if you, if you lose a fortune, you can always earn another but if you lose your good name, you can never get it back. Bingo. And Arthur, as soon as he starts making money, starts putting his name up everywhere. Sackler, Sackler this, the Sackler collection, the Sackler gallery. This is a gift from the Sacklers. Um, and he starts obscuring the, the kind of, uh, I think, maybe in his mind, somewhat crass way in which he made his money. 
So, you know, nobody who knew him in the art world in the 1960s in New York knew that he was the guy who designed the marketing for Valium. So it's making him enormously rich. Um, and he's, he turns around and spends all that money on art and giving big gifts to museums and putting his name on things. But he didn't ever want the connection to be there. So it's one of those things where I don't think of that as, as um, it's not expiation of, of any guilt, but I think it is a kind of distraction. Right. You know, there's a sense of what we want to be known for is not the, the crass way in which, and maybe ethically dubious way in which we made our money. We want to be known for having endowed this center at the Guggenheim or, you know, being on the board of the Met or whatever, whatever that thing is. And you're absolutely right that um, starting with Arthur and then it's gone through three generations of the family, there is this fixation on, um, I mean, with Arthur, it was being on the board of the Met. And that was the ultimate thing where it wasn't enough to just be really rich in New York. Uh, you know, th this was the most exclusive club at all of all, and it was the one that excluded him, and it drove him mad. Yeah, incredible. Uh, in in the same book that I just mentioned, where I explained this this the the, the lead up to the question, uh, philanthropy as a costly signal, I refer to Maimonides. Uh, the Jewish philosopher, rabbi, and also physician uh, nearly a thousand years ago. And so he, well, whilst he wasn't an evolutionist in, by name, because at the time we didn't understand evolution the way that we do today, uh, he was a Darwinian being who understood human nature. And so this is what he said that's relevant to what we're talking about. There are, he, he argued that there are, uh, so tzedakah in Hebrew is, uh, you know, a pious, a, a good deed, right? A uh, so he argued that there are eight levels of tzedakah, the Hebrew word, of which the highest level, which so few people can ever achieve, is where when they engage in an act of generosity, of philanthropy, of altruism, neither the recipient of the act nor the giver know each other's identity. Therefore, I cannot reap any of that juicy Darwinian reputational, you know, you know, oomph. And of course, the Sacklers are perfectly demonstrating that it's very hard to reach that eighth level yeah. because it's Sackler this, Sackler that. It's not the anonymous XXX. No. Right. And there's, yeah, I mean, there's a great line from Arthur Sackler's longtime attorney where he said, uh, if, you're, if you're putting your name on it, it's not charity. Boom. It's a business. It's a business deal. That's what he said. So I'm going to tell you a very humorous, and I'm, I'm mindful of your time that we probably have about ten minutes. Uh, but I'm so enjoying this chat with you, uh, oh Patrick. Uh, there is a. Uh, do, do you remember? Do you know? Do you know the show Curb Your Enthusiasm? Do you know? Of course. Yeah. 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 Okay. There you go. So there is an episode on Curb Your Enthusiasm where Larry David, the main protagonist, who was friends with. Um, What's the guy's name from Cheers? His name escapes me. The main Ted Danson. Ted yeah. Danson. Thank you. Yeah, I was yeah. thinking Sam, but that's from his name on Cheers. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, t and they each are playing themselves in the show. Uh, they're they're at some museum where they both gave some some amount of money as part of you know some charity gift giving. But in the case of Larry David, he. It's stated that it's Larry David who gave it. Whereas in the case of Ted Danson, do you know how I'm going with this? Remind me. Okay. So what, 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 in the case of Ted Danson, 
it is anonymous, so therefore it's you know he's truly pious because he's he's adhering to the Maimonides. But, but, but he has to tell Larry that he did it. Well, everybody who everybody who matters knows that it's Ted Danson. <laughs> so Larry David confronts him. Now the reason why I I remember this so well because one of the things that I do in my work is I argue that cultural products, including movie themes and art and religion and uh, television shows. They titillate us because they typically contain universal themes that are consistent with our human nature. That's why we we we, we want to watch them. We want to hear the song, and so that little snippet from the Larry Day, from Curb Your Enthusiasm spoke to exactly that Darwinian principle. So I often watch those shows with an evolutionary lens. So yeah. again, like Sackler. The, the, the- Go ahead. Larry, who is Larry David if not the, the Maimonides of Brentwood? Right? <laughs> it's very well said. Exactly. All right. Uh, a couple of more uh, questions for you. So if you were – so one of the things that I – when I'm talking to my students, let's say they're writing their thesis, their dissertation, they're working on a paper with me, one of the things that is most difficult for them to uh, understand as a as a writer, even though it could be under the – uh, the more uh, restrained, you know, template of an academic paper. I mean, right? You have more leeway when you're writing your book. Mm-hmm. In an academic paper, you know, there's, you know, the the introduction, the literature review, the hypotheses. Right. So th- that template is set. I always tell them, you know, where's your roadmap? Show me the roadmap. Right. By roadmap, I mean if I'm reading your story, I know exactly where I am in the unfolding story. It doesn't matter if it's a scientific story. A scientific story is still a story, right? Mm-hmm. So in your case, you know, you've got this thousands of documents, all kinds of stuff. It's a very different procedure for generating the, the information that you will need to weave your story. How do you generate that roadmap? Um, is it a longitudinal one? I'm just going to go from the fifties to now. Well, I mean, it is, it is in a kind of broadly speaking, I'm a, I'm very, uh, you know, it's funny. I have colleagues who just write without an outline. I, I am a fiendish outliner. Um, I, you hear people sometimes talk about writer's block and the, you know, the terror of the blank page. And I, it's not an experience I ever have because by the time I sit down to write, I have a roadmap. I'm the exact same way. Detailed. Yeah. I mean, and, and so I find that helpful. Um, and, but also necessary because the type, particularly these last couple of books, the, um, part of what I'm trying to do is take an ex- extraordinarily complicated story and, um, render it in a manner that will be inviting for non-specialists, uh, yeah. for people who, you know, might not even have a particular interest in the opioid crisis or in big pharma or in philanthropy, but who I think if I'm doing it right, they will encounter these characters and there's a kind of undertow where you, they get kind of pulled in hmm. and before they know it, they're learning about all those things, but hopefully in a manner that, that doesn't feel forbiddingly complex. And so that process of distillation means that for me, narrative is, um, you know, narrative is the Trojan horse. Narrative is the, the way to pull that off. And it means that both, you know, broadly speaking in terms of the arc of the story, but then also in any given chapter and any given section of a chapter, where do we start? Who's the person who will pull us through this? Are there reversals? Are there surprises? Um, I'm a big believer in withholding information. 
uh, from the reader. You know, so so to your question about is it is it longitudinal? Is it, you know, it's not. Um, I, I will almost never just sort of present things in a in a purely chronological way because I think there's some fun in having the writer. Uh, you know, withhold one card and then and then and then deal right. it at the precise moment. Um, so I, I think there are a kind of an array of um, seductive techniques, a lot of them from fiction, frankly, that that can be employed to uh, take a really complicated story like this and 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 hopefully just make it an engaging read. So I was I was actually going to ask you be, be, to stay on that theme because I know that you also do I think you do fiction right as a screenwriter is that is that correct? I do yeah, yeah yeah so what are some similarities in terms of the process of writing a book like Empire of Pain and fiction and what are some things that are uniquely different Oh I mean for me the process is so different because the um I it's part of the reason I I you know the only fiction I do is in screenwriting and but there I really am staring at the blank page and it's terrifying because you have to just kind of make it up there's there's no the beauty of nonfiction for me is that you do the research and it grows out of it you sort of know your great moments when you find them so it's much more that you're I, what I'm doing is I'm absorbing a huge amount of material and I'm looking for these little gold threads and I want to collect enough of those gold threads that I can kind of weave my own, um, my own tapestry with them. Whereas with the fictional stuff, I'm just purely making it up. I mean, this, the sense in which I find a kind of interplay between the two, um, uh, weirdly is, is in structure and in getting in and out of scenes. So there's an economy in screenwriting where, um, you know, if you watch a movie, unless it's a, an art house film or, or a TV show for that matter, uh, you'll rarely be in a scene for longer than about four minutes, say. And that in screenwriting template, that's four pages of text. And getting in and out of a scene in four pages of text is just hard. It's like a haiku. But it gets you thinking, I think, in a, in a way that's useful about, you know, what's the last possible moment I can come into the scene? And what's the first possible moment I can get out of it? And... Um, for me in writing scenes in, in nonfiction, that's just a really helpful way to think. You don't, you're not governed by the same constraints, you know, it's a 500 page book. Um, but there are, um, little tricks, right? So it's, there's some of there in, in the book, there are, there's stuff about the love life of Arthur Sackler and the kind of tawdry, you know, the multiple women in his life and his mistress at a certain point gets pregnant. And, and I, it's I'm not ashamed to kind of take a moment where you find out that the mistress is pregnant and then I'm going to get out of the scene right there. And hopefully what I'll do then is get into some exposition and tell you about stuff that you didn't think you wanted to know about, because you're going to get through that stuff in order to find out what's happening with the with the pregnant mistress, you know, and that kind of that sort of structuring where rather than give each thing its own section and then tell the whole story, think about ways to break it up so that you're it's almost like mixed media. Um, I find very, very helpful as a writer. Are those insights that you just mentioned, so to kind of link it back to the Bernie Madoff case where I said, you know, mm -hmm. can you actually be teaching someone to be ethical versus, you know, you are or you aren't, nature-nurture, uh, sort of that kind of dichotomy. Uh, 
are are the insights that you just mentioned about cadence and rhythm and when to get in and out of the scene. I, I love that explanation. Is this largely some, I mean, yes, of course you honed those skills as a writer for 15 plus years, but is this something that you think you have or you don't, or can we take the University of Iowa creative writing master's program to actually get the insight that Patrick just shared with us? I don't think it can be. I mean, I, I, it's, I think those master's programs are helpful in that you practice. It's taken me a long time to figure this stuff out. And weirdly, I guess what I was trying to convey is that, um, you know, is that in a, in a weird way, the screenwriting, which has been just a side thing for me and not, you know, something which I'm not especially successful. Um, but yes, it's, yes. it's, um, there you go. Yeah. Hope springs eternal. Um, but, um, but I've been able to kind of import some of that stuff. And so I've learned that along the way. I, I think it just takes time. I, I don't think, I wish, I mean, I'm sure there are people who are just born with it. Um, Maybe I, you're being modest. I'm well, sensing some modesty. Uh, last question, because I'm looking at the clock mm-hmm. and I know you have to leave. Uh, is there anything that you'd feel comfortable sharing about your next project? Please use this platform to plug away. Oh, thank you. Well, I'll, so let's think. I have, it looks like I'll have a book coming out next spring, which will be just, it'll be a collection of pieces that I've written. Um, okay. um, and uh, I'm just starting a new project for the New Yorker, which all I'll say is it's about, it's about the concept of whistleblowing. Oh, very um, nice. So I'm, I don't know exactly what the dimensions of that will be, but I'll be doing a piece for the New Yorker about people who blow the whistle. Has the, has the rigorous roadmap outline been generated yet or no, you're working on that yet. not yet, not yet. I'm, oh boy that'll be uh that'll be a good day when, when i have that patrick it's such a pleasure to meet you i hope i adhere to our time constraints yeah, absolutely i look forward to having you back on when the next book comes on thank you so much for coming on i would love that this was really fun that Thanks was really fun me. thank you so much cheers okay